Welcome to the Leadership Drip, coffee and conversations for leaders leading the next generation. We're excited to welcome another incredible guest to our table, but before we do, could you do us a favor and hit the subscribe button? And while you're at it, go ahead and give us a five-star review. That helps these conversations reach other great leaders. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and get ready to join us at the table for another great episode of the Leadership Drip. Jeff, welcome back to Leadership Drip. Well, welcome back. Yeah, your coffee today is hot. My coffee, it is still decaffeinated. Still That's decaffeinated. Yeah, okay. But uh, we have a we have a great show today, and I'm super excited about our guest. He is a, a writer, a speaker, a media producer. He's coming out of Burbank, California. He's helping leaders navigate their career, their calling. Uh, really, in today's distracted, media-driven kind of culture, which is such a prevalent conversation. Yeah. Uh, when we start talking about Digital Babylon, and um, that is Phil Cook. And Phil, thank you for being on the show. I'm thrilled to be here. Hello from Hollywood. I, this is a real honor. This will be fun. It's been a minute, Rob, since we've had a SoCal guy on the show. Like, there was a string where there was like five or six guests who I think were from Southern California, and I feel like that was a setup. Like, you orchestrated that somehow. Yeah, then we, then we got stuck in the Midwest somewhere with Chicagoland and <laughs> Well, the all the Californians are moving to the Midwest. That's what's happening right now. That is what's happening. In Tennessee. So actually, so yeah. actually Phil's, <laughs> Phil is our second Hollywood guest. Uh, sure. If you remember, we had Madeline Carroll. Do you know Madeline? Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. So uh, probably a year ago, we had Madeline on the show. She's doing great things. So, but you have a very interesting story because you have a PhD in theology. <laughs> How does a guy yeah. with a PhD in theology end up in Hollywood? Well, that's, yeah, it's kind of weird. Um, my dad was a pastor and my dad had two PhDs and I just grew up with a real love of learning. I've got a massive library. He had one. I've kind of followed in his footsteps and I just love learning. I, I got my, you know, I got my bachelor degree. Then 10 years later, I got my master's. Then 10 years later, I got my PhD. I just really like going to class. And so I, I chose theology because even though I was a producer, you know, communication, when you get up to the PhD level, it's all research and formulas and modeling and just really yeah. weird stuff. And I just, most of our clients and people we work with are Christian organizations. And I love theology. I always have. And um, I thought, you know, let me go explore that. I had to do a little extra stuff on the side to catch up, but uh, I, I actually did my my doctoral dissertation on the movie, the Shawshank Redemption, which oh, freaked the doctoral committee out. But yeah, it was, it was a great experience and I'm thrilled that I did it. The Shawshank is one of my top 10 movies. It's a good one. Yeah. It's terrific. Really terrific. And, and my point with the movie was to say, Hey, as Christians, we got to come up with a better way to evaluate movies than analyzing the number of cuss words or sex scenes or scenes yeah. of violence or things like that. And I said, Shawshank is a perfect example. It's got everything bad in it. It's got all that stuff in it. And yet it's a powerful, powerful, compelling movie, mm -hmm. and it's a really a redemption story. So I, I, that was kind of my example to say it's time for us Christians to rethink how we analyze movies. That's a, that's a big thing, I think. Yeah. Well, two things. First of all, uh, I'm really encouraged by the fact that you are doing what you're doing where you are and you're, you're learning. So my wife asked me all the time, are you ever going to stop going to school? And I said, probably not. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Rob, Rob is in the process yes. of finishing, finishing his dissertation. I'm in dissertation mode right now. So hopefully excellent. September, September 1st is my deadline. So hopefully I can get, get the draft in by then. But the point is that was the first point. The second point is I think this, this conversation that, that you've kind of initiated here with the, the redemption piece of, of, of different kinds of media or different kinds of expressions of, of art. I right. think it's really a conversation that, that we, I say, we 
the church have not handled as well possibly mm-hmm. as we could have. But I think that that is changing, especially with this generation. So this course that I'm teaching right now that I'm getting ready to close up for the summer is called Becoming More Than Christian, uh, based off a book by Addison Bevere. But the point is, how are you seeing this kind of evolve in your world, which is traditionally well outside of the church paradigm? Like, how are you living or how are you seeing other believers in your world become more than just the cultural term Christian? Well, it's a good point. And I, I tell you, know, it's funny. I tell young people who are coming to Hollywood, if they want to be a director, producer, actor, whatever, lead with your talent, not with your faith. You know, so often we have kids that will come out to Hollywood and some of them are quite talented, but they, the first thing they do is tell a producer, look, God called me to Hollywood to change the industry, or they'll go to a meeting at a studio or a network and say, God's called me here to change what you guys are doing. Well, they get laughed off the lot, you know, they get kicked out of the building. Mm -hmm. And so I've learned that if you go in with your talent first, and impress them, let them know that you're a brilliant actor or producer or writer or director or whatever. Suddenly they embrace that and they're open to anything you have to say. I mean, I've never, everybody in town knows I'm a Christian, but because our team does really quality work, we still get hired for all kinds of projects, you know, at places like DreamWorks or, or Disney or places like that. So it, it's, I've just discovered Hollywood is not really anti-Christian. They're just fairly ignorant of all things Christian. They didn't mm. grow up in a Christian home. Uh, you know, most high level people at, in the attorney business or any other bit in the business world, they didn't either. And so we just have to understand that if we can speak their language, impress them, make them understand that we're really good at what we do, that gets their attention. And, uh, and, and what's happened is there are hundreds of dedicated Christians in all kinds of levels here in Hollywood making an impact. And it's really a remarkable thing to see. So that's an interesting point about the, the doing things with excellence. Cause I feel like the Christian media and media in all the art forms, film, uh, music, even in, in photography has been less than excellent. There's always sort of a, a tinge of Christian ease attached to it. And it, it doesn't make the mark. What was the driving force for you to go, hey, we're not just going to make good Christian art. We're going to make art that, that is on the same level as Hollywood or on the same level as Nashville or wherever the context is. What was the driving force for that level of excellence? Well, my family were big on movies. My dad, even though he was a pastor, he loved movies. Even back when he was ministering in the 50s and 60s and 70s, he loved movies. So I grew up going to films and seeing them. And my dad didn't know a lot about them, but he understood their power. And I got to see some really powerful movies. And I got involved in the independent filmmaking movement back in the 70s and 80s. -hmm. So you start seeing what works and what doesn't. And I just have a natural uh, allergic reaction to cheese. I just hate cheesy movies and cornball scenes and acting and things like that. And you're right. I, I think a lot of it, when it, it, particularly when we talk about Christian media, a lot of it stems from the fact that the pioneers of Christian media, radio and TV, certainly back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, were not producers or writers or creative people. They were preachers. They were pastors yeah. and preachers and teachers. And so the Billy Grahams, the Fulton Sheens, the Oral Roberts types, they embraced media early. Now, They knew what they were teaching and they were great speakers, but they didn't know anything about how to package a program. So for many, many years, um, 
guys like that just were out there. They had a passion to share the gospel, but they just really didn't know what, how to do it in a really great way. And so what I've seen over the years since then is a new generation of, of creative leaders are stepping in who understand the importance of producing and directing and writing, lighting a scene, for instance, um, and really making something that works. So while we continue to see bad, bad movies put out by Christians, you know, keep in mind, we also see really bad movies put out by Hollywood every year. That's true. Um, We still see that. However, I do, I'm incredibly encouraged that we're seeing more and more really high quality work by Christians in the industry. I, I have one friend who's a strong Christian guy, but he, he directs horror movies and he loves, he's got a whole theology of why Christians should be doing horror movies. Hmm. And uh, it's really kind of funny. He said, you know, in most movies today, the hero is, is in a real gray area. You don't know. It's not a black and white thing anymore. You don't know if he's good mm-hmm. or bad or what he said in horror movies. You always know who the good guys are. You always know who the bad guys are. And the bad guy always gets what's coming to him in the end. He said from a theological framework, it's a much better model. So uh, he's out there doing those kind of movies. So it's just interesting. The number of Christians out here trying to speak the language of the culture in different ways. And it's just getting better and better. I think I'm going to set you up, Phil, because I have uh, a question about something that's being produced right now, which I think is excellent in the chosen. Um, The Jenkins were actually Dallas was in high school with me. Um, which is the retelling of, if those of you have not watched The Chosen, it's kind of the retelling of Jesus and the disciples from the disciples' point of view. But it's some of the best Christian art I think we've had in a long time. So I've heard heard that from a lot of places, by the way. So what is your take on something that's being crowdfunded, like The Chosen? Yeah. Well, I think there's a number of things. First of all, I'm really proud of Dallas and what he's done. It's been, that was a remarkable thing. It was a brilliant idea. And um, I think it was good. When I first heard about it, I thought, oh, the last thing we need is another movie on the life of Jesus. I mean, come on, how many do we have to have? And um, but it's really quite brilliantly done. Now, I think the, the, the crowdfunding model is kind of a one off. I don't see that happening yeah. a lot. Um, so, you know, I hope people aren't rushing out to do a crowdfunding film and expecting that kind of result, but he'd been planning this for a very long time. And I think that's a real key strategy matters. I've worked with a number of ministries over the years that their media team was super creative, but that's all they thought about. They didn't, it wasn't creativity for a purpose. It wasn't creativity Mm -hmm. to try to impact somebody. I think, uh, what Dallas has done is really bring strategy to the day to the table and think this through and look at the result. It's really quite amazing. So I, I'm, I'm really excited for what he's done and, and super excited about his success. I think it's just a really remarkable thing. Yeah, it's not his first movie either. Like no, our no. first no. project. I've watched some some early Dallas Jenkins, you know. Well, he uh, admits some of the early Dallas yeah. Jenkins was. You know, some of it's great though, like, yeah. but it was cheesy Christian films in some <laughs> regards, so. We all have skeletons in our creative closets, trust yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> as preachers, we have some bad ones too. So. <laughs> Lots of them. So here's an interesting kind of conversation that I've been having recently, too. There's there's been this um, there's a transientness and a contextualization to things that used to be bad that are now good. So, for example, uh, at this institution years ago, decades ago, going to the movies was a bad thing. Right. That was a rule. Uh, But now we have a full, uh, you know, fully feature film. Uh, major that you can actually do these kinds of things right. for for a living, right? So yeah, so there, there's a transientness to these types of conversations, which I think is is good. So from your perspective, kind of looking forward, is there a a contextualization or transientness to anything that you see happening next that may not necessarily be um, 
you know, acceptable or, or kosher at the moment. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I totally get it. I, I went to Oral Roberts University back in the early 70s. And we weren't allowed to, there was no dancing allowed on campus. And right. uh, if we wanted to organize a dance or something, we had to do it off campus. Today, ORU has a dancing major. They have a dance right. major. And so it's really come full circle in that respect. And I think you're right. Uh, one of the things I've been involved in, my wife, Kathleen, and I got involved early on with Biola University here in LA, taking a group of students to the Sundance Film Festival. Now, the Sundance Film Festival is probably as liberal a film festival as you can act ever imagine. I mean, it politically on the political spectrum, it is ragingly liberal out there and very anti anything religious. But yet we started taking it started with about 10 or 15 film students and then it's grown. We've invited other colleges and other universities now join the group every year and it's gone up to about 70 or 80 students and they basically interact with the filmmakers during the day and then they go see films every evening. And then the next day they go interact with the filmmakers that made the films they saw. And the conversations that have just happened there, I just realized would have never happened 20 years ago at a Christian right. college. Uh, they're confronting issues and mm -hmm. things and the way the culture thinks they're seeing stuff they would never, ever see at a Christian kind of environment. So it's been really good. And at the same time, it's exposed Sundance people, particularly the creative crowd at Sundance to these Christian college students. And what's really funny is we become the single biggest block ticket buyers to the Sundance Film Festival. This group of Christian college filmmaking students are now the biggest block ticket buyers to Sundance. And they roll out the red carpet for them. And it's just really interesting. So to see Christian filmmaking students, Christian college students engaging with people at this level in the industry, that's just a remarkable, remarkable thing. And so who knows what's going to be open? I, you know, I'm a big Obviously, I've got my PhD in theology, so I'm really aware of lines we don't want to cross theologically and biblically. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, so much of what the church, what's held the church back has been cultural issues, not biblical issues. We've decided you can't smoke, you can't dance, you can't see movies and all these things. And that's just not a biblical issue. So I think as we've tried to get rid of all those things and rethink how we engage the culture, it's helped us get a lot more credibility out there. Yeah. So from a theological perspective, and, and I, I agree with everything you're saying, but from a theological perspective, we have to not only have sort of a culture shift in the, the Western American Christian context in terms of good or bad, right or wrong, what's, what's acceptable and not acceptable, right? That's, that's a whole different conversation. Also, I'm a Biola grad, and I know they have a fantastic uh, program there, but, but, I do, but also from a theological perspective, it's not that we should just be tiptoeing into these areas or these arenas, whether it be film or business or whatever. We actually should be the ones sort of leading the charge. You know, yeah. the, I mean, the creator of heaven and earth, the same spirit lives within us that raised Jesus from the dead, right? That's theologically. Yes. Right. Totally. Dominating these arenas. So how, yeah. do you, how do you see us begin to actually not only just navigate or, or step into these arenas, but begin to actually to lead the charge and creativity and conversation in these arenas. Yeah, you're right. It's interesting that in the very first verse of the Bible, God chose to introduce himself as a creator. Yeah. And uh, yet we just don't value that in so many places. And throughout history, you know, the church was the leader in, in the creative world. Um, I, I Oddly enough, I'm going to tell you something weird. And that's oddly enough, COVID has really helped this. Um, mm -hmm. Because I'll tell you, 
hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of churches would be out of business today if it wasn't for the creative team during that shutdown. Um, you know, we've spent years working with churches and ministry organizations, helping them with live streaming. And when the shutdown happened, suddenly we just got flooded with phone calls from churches needing advice. And what do we do? And how do we maximize our live stream? How do we make it work? And I just really got to see that communication and media people, the creative team at churches were keeping that church alive because they were working overtime, getting live streams out, helping with social media, doing these other things. And what I've seen is a huge renaissance in the perception pastors have for their creative team. In fact, it's funny, over the last maybe six or eight months, I've spent more time teaching when I do conferences and events, even some on Zoom, I've done them all over with people all over the world. I've started teaching more and more about how to lead creative teams, because I'll tell you, as you know, in seminary, they don't teach you about communication or media. Um, and most pastors just have no idea how to work with that graphic designer, that video person, yeah. uh, that webmaster, how, how to deal with those people. So I just see pastors suddenly as a result of COVID and the shutdown have had so much more of an appreciation of their creative team. And they've really brought them to the table. I was at a meeting in a large church in New Orleans just last week. And it was about the creative team. They were the voices that were really having the most influence on the pastor in the church because he's recognized what's happened over the last year. So I, I hope I hope that continues because I, I and I'm telling people, you know what, COVID has forever changed the way we do church. And I'm telling people not to take your foot off the gas when it comes to your live stream at your church. We need to keep that going. But I hope it's changed the way pastors have viewed creativity, uh, communication, media, all those things, because I think it's really critical that, that they understand how that works. So, so Phil, then how as leaders, so I think we're shifting and we saw that in the COVID, we've talked to lots of pastors who that became their primary focus. How do we get online? How do we get our messages more than just content online? How do we be present online? Yeah. But as Christian leaders, because that's the primary audience we have. How are we maybe to personally engage or even as a brand, a lot of times a pastor become, becomes engaged online? Well, I could write a book. about. I have written a book about that, actually, and I could teach for hours on that subject. It's a big topic. But I think the important thing is understand that today and, and you know, the biggest pushback we get against social media and connecting online from pastors, particularly older pastors, is yes, but we need the fellowship. You know, we need the real fellowship. Well, I'll tell you. Talk to anybody under 35 years old and fellowship happens online. It's yeah. not, you know, it's not such a big deal that they're physically together. And so, first of all, pastors need to understand the way this generation thinks about the online world. For the first time, I think Generation Z, the kids who are in college in their 20s right now, keep in mind, this is a generation that doesn't know anything about not having an iPhone. They don't know anything about not being online. They are totally a digital generation. And so how we engage with them really, really does matter. And so I've been telling pastors throughout the shutdown, it's not just about your live stream. That, that's the start. That's important. That's just the start. Right. How you're connecting during the week through Instagram video, Facebook videos, uh, all kinds of social media platforms really does matter. And I, I think that if pastors aren't willing to try that, it, it, you know, I was thinking the other day, it, it would be like if a pastor 20 years ago said, you know, I just don't do books. I just, I'm sorry, but I'm just not a, a book person. That would be ridiculous to be a pastor and not be into books. Today, I just think the same feeling about social media. If you're a pastor and you're not engaged in some way, and, and granted, if you're an older pastor, I get it. That's kind of out of your sphere. You, I, I, I don't, I don't have a problem with that, except I would encourage you to dip your toe in the water and at least try it. Mm -hmm. But I've just seen remarkable things happen on social media over the years. And, uh, 
uh, I, I just think it's it's too important. I, I've told I've said many times when I talk that that by population, the largest country on the earth on the planet now is Facebook, which, you know, but the question is, who's sending missionaries to that country? Who's planning yeah. churches in that country? I, I, if there was one thing I wish your listeners would walk away from from this podcast is we need to stop thinking about missions just in terms of geographic boundaries and start thinking about missions in terms of digital boundaries, because that's the country we need to be reaching with the gospel. I think that's really a critical thing. Yeah, I think I think it's it's been such a huge culture shift just in terms of the paradigm of the local church, but also it's a massive leadership shift because now more than ever, if any time there's been a an opportunity for young adults to lead in the church, the local church, it's right now. I mean, yeah. these yeah. these are the apostles, the digital apostles that that we need to kind of step in and and contribute and to lead high and to lead well. They don't need to be relegated to some you know, small section of the church, let them come to the elders meetings, let them come to the deacon boards, let them be a part of the pastoral sort of planning and strategy sessions, because they're, they're thinking and they're seeing and they're speaking in ways that, that we can't at least people my age, right? Yeah. You know, you know that's yeah, not native to us. They're native. You, you said that. So I think it's, it's been such a huge leadership shift as well. And I think, I think that's, that's a different aspect of this, um, this era that we need to consider as well. Well, you know, pastors have always suffered from myopia in the sense that they only think about who they see in that congregation, mm. but your communication team sees way beyond the walls of the church. And while you may be reaching 200, 500, a thousand people, whatever, even 75 people in your church, your, your communication team could be amplifying your message to hundreds of thousands beyond the walls of the church. So pastors are starting to really understand that for the first time, I think, and really getting a handle on just how important. I mean, after all, Paul, the apostle Paul used the technology of his day, which was letters to build the foundation of the early church. And then along, you know, about 1500, Martin Luther came in and used the technology of his day, which is the printing press right. to become the most famous published author in the world and, and literally change publishing completely. And so for us today to not use technology to share the gospel, obviously there's a lot of negatives about social media. There's a lot of things to be careful of, but at the same time, not to use it as a tool, I think it's just really quite foolish. Yeah. So how do we guard against, cause we've seen it a lot lately, pastors who their brand is bigger than the church. And we've seen pastors yeah. who, who have built substantial social media followings and become sort of culturally famous and Christian celebrityism is, is among us. We got to acknowledge that it's here come crashing down. Yeah. So within that context, how do we set a guard up on that? Well, I think you're exactly right. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's a really a pride issue. And I think so many pastors tend to get to a place where they're surrounded by a team of yes men. Mm -hmm. um, I, I believe me, I've worked for both over the years. I've, I've had the opportunity to engage with both. And um, I, I know people that are remarkably influential that, that could be a celebrity pastor, but they just refuse to be. Uh, you look at guys like Jack Hayford, who was my pastor for many, many years uh, here in Los Angeles. He was Jack. He was just Pastor Jack. Everybody knew him yeah. as Jack. He had no ego. He had no pride. And yet he was one of the most influential pastors in America. Uh, Jack Graham at Prestonwood Baptist Church was, is the same way today. I just find that there are some people that surround themselves with a team that they're all equals. You know, it's funny. I, 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 I've written a blog post about this just recently that 
I get, you know, a lot of cases like you talk about Ravi Zacharias, the great tragedy mm-hmm. that happened in his ministry just recently. You know, one of the issues there is the team that surrounds a leader like that. A, they get a salary. They're getting, you know, they're making a living. This is uh, this is the way they make their living. They also get a lot of prestige of being in the inner circle of a leader. So I get they're very hesitant to pull the plug on somebody or even when they see something happening that they should report they're hesitant to do it. And in many cases, the leadership team are made up of people that got saved at this person's ministry, or they got their marriage put back together, or they, they, you know, something significant in their life happened because of that pastor or leader. So I see why it's hard to do it. That's why I think pastors have to be incredibly careful to surround themselves with people that they respect, who are willing to really talk to them and, and tell them the truth. You don't have to be brutal about it, but I think telling a pastor, hey, you know, for whatever reason, I'm not a pastor, but my my creative team here at Cook Media Group, the Lord has seemed to surround me, has seen fit to surround me with people that are happy to tell me I'm an idiot. Um, they're happy to tell me my ideas are stupid and won't work. So and, I, and I'm thrilled for that. I love that. And I think pastors just have to be more intentional about making sure they're surrounded by people they respect and they listen to. Yeah. Yeah. So so then then the conversation kind of kind of shifts a little bit here. So we're we're dabbling into the social media side, which is obviously a medium that's not going anywhere anytime soon. It keeps changing faces a little bit, right? Um, right. But but it's not going anywhere, obviously. So the next question is, how much time do we invest? How much money do we invest mm. um, in order for us to create something that is of quality or worthy of that investment, right? Because the we've also seen the flip side where it's not just about getting on a Facebook page and quoting, you know, throwing up your Bible verses and all that, that's not really effective either. Right. So, so there, there's a, there's a rhythm and a, and sort of a balance to this conversation about social media that we haven't quite figured out yet, I think. So how are you helping leaders and pastors sort of navigate that, that as well? Yeah, I think that's an important question. Um, I think that, that the key thing is being being the same person on social media that you are in real life. You know, we've heard terms like authenticity, you know, right. being real, that kind of stuff. Um, I think that's really, that's, that's an important issue. If I, I often say that if I see another guy, another pastor post today is the day the Lord hath made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. I'll blow my brains out. You know, I, I, I love scripture, but that's not what social media is about. Social media is about sharing your heart with people. It's about being real with people, having conversations online. And we forget that social media is social. Um, so often pastors will post something and they just walk away. And they don't respond to the people who respond to them. I had a pastor in North Carolina call me just recently and say, you know, I've never, ever responded to somebody. He said, even though you've told me to, I've never responded to people on my social media feeds. And he said, a woman responded to something I posted on Facebook the other day, and I felt led to just talk to her. And so I engaged with her and she had a theological question. I answered it. And he said, lo and behold, the next Sunday she came to church. And he said, then lo and behold, at the end of the service, she came forward and accepted Christ. And he said, then lo and behold, on Monday, I got a call that the woman had been killed in a car accident. He said, it sounds cheesy just to say it. He said, it sounds kind of over-spiritualizing, but the truth is, what if I had not engaged with that woman on social media? What yeah. if we'd not started that conversation? What would have, what could have happened? So uh, th- that's kind of an extreme situ- situation, but I've seen over and over that pastors who are willing to engage with the people that talk to them. I mean, obviously there are nuts out there. There are trolls out there. I get that. You don't want to waste your whole life doing this. But I think if you really post with the intention of 
checking occasionally what people say, how they're responding to your post, re-engage with them. You could just start some amazing conversations happening mm-hmm. and really change the perception of people toward the church. Yeah. You mentioned trolls and they are out there. All right. And we've yeah. got some 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 friends have been on the show who have taken some really bad beatings on social media. Um, we won't <laughs> that name names. Of who- that means they're accomplishing something. So well, that's, and good that's, thing. The, that's the thing. Like, so in, in being authentic, you're going to have people who disagree. Like, I, I like to say that um, I'm not everybody's cup of coffee, but some people like tea, you know, so. Right. So how do we deal with those well, who are going to be haters and trolls? I certainly get my share. And, and, and I've discovered this for all you pastors that are listening, that every church in America that's really accomplishing something great has an, a disgruntled ex-employee or an ex-church member who's decided to create a Facebook page or a blog for the express purpose of criticizing that church. I know one church out here in the West that has a guy that he, he just did something ticked him off about the church and he created a blog and every Sunday, every week, he posts something negative about the church. And uh, so that's going to happen. But here's, here's my thing. I'm divided into a couple different levels. Number one, uh, make sure that what they're saying is really a criticism. Sometimes it can be just a misunderstanding. Sometimes they don't really understand what you're trying to do or what you said, and they're asking a question and it may seem a little bit hostile, but it's really not. So I'm, I, I take a step back and take a breath, you know, particularly Twitter is so easy just to, to just uh, nail somebody just at the push of a button. And I have to just take a deep breath, step back and make sure I understand what they're saying. And if I can engage with them, I will, and maybe change their heart. If they're being a really ugly critic, sometimes taking them offline helps. Um, very, very often I advise churches, you know, have to have your social media person follow that person, engage with them, give them their, you know, their phone number and say, Hey, call me and we'll take care of this. We want to help you solve your problem. And that immediately takes the criticism offline. So people aren't seeing it. So that's why, but the other thing is if it's an unrepentant troll, if it's a troll, that's just a jerk. Don't be afraid to block, you know, so often as Christians, we feel like, well, we shouldn't block people. You know, we shouldn't eliminate those people from the conversation. Let me tell you something. If they're just an unrepentant jerk, block them. It does not help. In the same way of a chat room, of a church service, a live stream service, you just, if somebody's being a jerk, absolutely block them because that's distracting. One other thing I would say uh, about engaging with trolls is when I get really ugly criticism sometimes, I'll just check that person's followers. How many people are following him? So Twitter's a good example. If I had a guy rip, ripped into me the other day about something, so I checked his followers and he had seven people following him. That's probably his family. So if I responded to him, that means I would expose my 37,000 followers to that guy. I don't want to do that. That would help. That would only help him. So I just don't respond at all. And that probably makes it matter than ever. But by not responding, you're not sharing all your, this guy's email address, or his, his Twitter handle with all your followers. So right. just be careful in whether you engage, no matter how mad it may make you. Um, I, I did a post recently that um, I had a, some, a critic and I stepped back and took a breath. And while I did, a bunch of my followers went after this guy. So you don't even have to engage with a lot of critics. So I just, I, I would just advise pastors and leaders, remember, whatever you put online never goes away, Right. Yeah. never goes away. I, I even say with emails, you know, when you hit that send button, 
you have lost control of that email. And that person you're sending it to today may be your friend. Tomorrow, he may not be your friend and he has that email. So I'm just very cautious about what I say online. My, my accountant really taught me this because I'd ask my accountant financial questions about our company and or about me personally. And he'd always respond email with, give me a call. Just give me a call. We'll talk about it. Never talks about those things online because you just can't control where yeah. that ends up. That's interesting. And I think, I think what it speaks to again is a, is an, an, a, a need for a level of discernment and a need for a level of maturity in our, in our faith, right. That re, yes. is required when we take risks, uh, you know, we're all called to, to a life by the spirit. We're not called to, to a life of safety. We're not called to a life of, you know, not, not engaging the world. Right. And so when we actually yeah. do those things, yeah, there's going to be some of these conflicts and these tensions that arise. But I think, I think what you're speaking about is that level of maturity and that level of discernment that's required for us in order to, in order to actually become the, the light and the salt that, that Jesus is calling us to be. It's true. And, and it's tough in today's culture. I mean, we see so many things that are not right. We see so many things that are not biblical. And, you know, the, cult, the culture in so many ways is going south quickly. And we want to say something about it. We want to say something. But uh, I just have to be really cautious of that. What am I if, if something I say, I'm just going to start a stupid argument. What's the right. point of that? Um, so I try to take a little higher level view whenever I can. Now I will say that whatever I say about social media, completely disregard when it comes to my Instagram account, I just have fun with Instagram. So <laughs> I, I post a lot of, I post a lot of crazy stuff there. And, uh, so yeah, that's, that's so, a little different. So maybe for, for leaders who are sort of, you say dip the toe in or trying to get involved the different platforms, what, what kind of advice can you give on how to navigate the different platforms? Cause you can't just, yeah. it's not a one size fits all Twitter and Facebook and Instagram while, while Facebook owns Instagram and you know, they're not the same thing. They don't operate on the same algorithm. They're right. completely different. What are the wins? What are some ways to kind of early win, get connected and, and offer something more than a soundbite? Well, first of all, understand that they're different audiences. You know, I find that on Twitter, you're largely getting leaders. You get a lot of pastors on Twitter. You get a lot of CEOs, a lot of news people. There's a lot of news feeds on Twitter, a lot of academics. There's more leadership oriented stuff on Twitter than anywhere else I've seen. Um, Instagram is a lot hipper, uh, younger crowd. Uh, it's very visual. So I really like it. I, I can tend to graduate toward Instagram. Facebook is a little more friends and family oriented. You'll still get a lot of different people on there, but I've discovered it's more friendly um, family kind of issues, things like that. So starting out knowing who your audience is matters. So you're not posting the same thing. I rarely will post the same thing across all platforms. And the other thing I would say is don't feel like you have to do everything. Pick one or two or maybe three at the most and really focus on them. You know, TikTok is really blowing up, but it's just not something that I have a great interest for. It just, you know, I'm just, I feel like that's one, that's a bridge too far. I'm not going to go there. My son-in-law is a, an actor here in Hollywood and he's got a great TikTok following, but that's just not for me. So I'm focusing on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Although I have to say, I hate Facebook with every fiber of my being, but <laughs> that's just the way it operates. Um, but I, I just think knowing the audience is absolutely critical and then focusing what you want to do and what you want to accomplish. A lot of it is, you know, what has God called you to do with your life? What is your personal brand, if you will? What, what do you want people's, what do you want people to think of when they think of you? Um, do you, how do you want to be known? One of the things that got me into this was when I was a kid back in the fifties and sixties was during a time of 
pastors were doing a lot of gimmicks. You know, we had a pastor in our neighborhood that sat on a pole for a week until Sunday school numbers got up. Another pastor said if we could get enough people show up in church one Sunday, he'd shave his head. And I would go to school and kids would say, Phil, why do these pastors do such stupid things? And I realized the perception of the church really does matter. People are not going to, they're not going to engage with the gospel if they don't, if we're not people they want to be like. And so I think understanding what your perception is as you share the gospel is really kind of important. And uh, that's because that's going to, you know, Rodney Stark, uh, the sociologist at Baylor has said that the single greatest reason people convert is because they want to be like those people. So my big question is, are we living the kind of life that makes the culture look at us and think, I want to be like those people. I, I like what they post. I, I, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Their families are incredible. Their lives are amazing. I want to be like that. I'll tell you, if that would happen, then we'd have a revival in this country. Yeah, that'd be amazing. So, so how much of the behind the scenes then of the, because Instagram especially, I feel like is very all the good times. Yeah. So how much do we let people see of the the authentic bad times if, if we're trying to get them to live this way? I tell leaders that the single greatest reason people follow you on social media is they want to know what your life is like. Mm. Even if you have a small church, even if your church is 50, 75, 150 people, chances are someone just can't call you out of the blue and say, pastor, I'd like to meet you at Starbucks. You know, it's, it's you're busy. You're doing a lot of things. You can't always do that. Particularly if it's a larger church, it's impossible, but through social media, they can get a glimpse of what your life is like. I always, yeah. I tell pastors, I would, I'd love you to share on social media, right? right before you walk out on stage to do the funeral of somebody you loved and respected for many years in the church, what are the thoughts going through your mind? Hmm. You know, just be real, you know, late at night when you're struggling with that message and you can't get it all together, talk about, share that on social media. People love to hear those inside stories about what you're struggling with. I, I find that when I'm doing stuff uh, on a shoot, uh, like a film shoot or something, and I just do off the cuffs, things. They're the biggest responded to posts I can do. I did a thing with Greg Laurie, Pastor Greg Laurie at Harvest here in California uh, recently where he wanted to do a show, a television program to encourage guys to share their faith with other guys. And so he has a Mustang, a, a re replica of that bullet Mustang that Steve McQueen drove in that movie back in the 60s. And so we tricked it out with cameras and we set it all up and we had a giant drone following it up PCH and had a follow truck with a camera in it. And while we were rigging the car, he just pulled out his phone and just did a little Instagram video and said, Hey, I'm here with Phil cook. We're rigging out my Mustang to do a, have a conversation with a friend of mine about how to share faith with other guys. Let me tell you that went through the roof. So little moments like that, that are intimate insider moments that give people a glimpse of your life that they normally wouldn't see. I'll tell you, that's, that's really, that that's popular stuff. Yeah. So I think, I think this is kind of leading well into a conversation that I have on campus quite often uh, number one, it's it's vocation related, right? Discovering their brand, yep. you know, story brand or whatever. A lot of people are reading story brand and getting connected to story brand and trying to figure that out. Maybe that's a different conversation. But the point is, I think I think what each one of the students that I'm coming into contact with, they're all searching. If I could boil it down to one word is this this conversation of of significance. And so when we start talking about social media and the drive that pushes it there, one of the big qualifying sort of false realities is that that creates significance for them because of the number of followers or whatever. And though it could create some significance. So, so how are, how are we kind of helping young adults or how should we be helping young, young adults uh, better navigate this conversation of being influential and being, and being an influencer at the same time? Like, like where's the, where's the good rhythm in that? 
Well, it's, it's a perennial question, really, about how far we go. Where do we draw that line right. between what we're willing to do to become famous, if you will, um, or get noticed or be what we think is significant? Um, one of the things I, I felt like is I can have influence with my social media, but it's not the end all and be all for me. I'm, I'm writing books. I'm producing television programs and films and things like that. So I have to really curb my appetite for social media enough to focus, do enough deep work and focus on what I really need to do. Um, now, if somebody feels led that they can be, you know, get millions of followers and make a living from social media, that's a different story, but that's so incredibly rare. Um, you right. know, I, I, I've, we've actually, we've actually worked with a couple influencers out there who are Christians that do get remarkable numbers. And um, I, I just think that, that that's a great thing. If you feel called to do it, that's great. But for most of us, I could talk about my books on social media. I could talk about my films on social media. I can talk about my ideas about culture on social media, uh, my blog. I often talk about things I've written on my blog on social media. And it's more of a tool for sharing with a bigger audience. It just does. It, I have to say, it amazes me that um, I, I travel around the world. I've, I've produced programs in about 70 countries around the world, and I'm always on, on a plane. And no matter where I go, I meet people that know me because of my social media feed. And that's just a remarkable thing. And so I'm just able to start interesting conversations with people all over the world because of social media. So I value it, but I don't look at it as the end all right. be all of everything. Now, yeah. That probably didn't answer your question. That was probably a lousy but, answer. But it, yeah. I mean, it helps. Um, but but in maturity, you can say that as a 21, 22 year old, they don't have a book. They don't have a blog. They don't have. Yeah. television shows that is the end all be all measure so then maybe how do you define influence for yourself phil helping christians not suck at the media if i can do that i will die a happy man you're the guy we need to talk to that's what man if i can do that i'll die a happy man and the truth is that, that there's a lot of work to be done i'll be busy for the rest of my life i'm afraid so, um, so is influence then defined by connecting it to purpose and calling I think it can. Uh, yeah. That, that, uh, you guys are throwing some hard stuff at me here. Um, I think it can. I, I think, well, for me, everything is connected to purpose and calling everything. Yeah. My books are my, my, my films, my TV programs, everything I do is connected to my purpose and calling. And here's a, and that's the important thing. Um, one of the things we're saying, particularly to leaders, <coughs> excuse me, is one of the important things we're saying is that think of a narrow niche or niche, however you want to say it. Um, it's not, you're not trying to address everything out there. For instance, with me, my whole life is about the intersection of faith, media, and culture. I don't, on my blog, I don't talk about recipe or my social media. I don't talk about recipes. I don't talk about politics. I don't talk about football. I talk about the intersection of faith, media, and politics. And if you want to break through on social media, that's the way to do it. Find that niche, that niche where you can be the best in the world at. And the smaller, the most, the more narrow, the better. Yeah. The illustration I often use is the woman who's won the most Grammy Awards in history is not Aretha Franklin or Barbara Streisand or Celine Dion or Beyonce. The woman who by far has won the most Grammy Awards in history is Alison Krauss, the bluegrass player, because she just competes in this little narrow, narrow little niche. And she, as a result, she's so good. She walks away with the Grammys. She, she just takes all those Grammys in the bluegrass category every single year. And as a result, she dominates. Now that's made her so famous that now she recorded a rock album with Robert Plant years ago. She, I've heard she's thinking about a classical album. She could do anything she wants now because she's so mm -hmm. famous. So 
In a likewise scenario, I tell directors or producers coming to Hollywood, don't try to compete with every director in Hollywood. Let's find a certain niche. Maybe it's a certain genre of film, a certain budget level, a certain size film. You could compete in there and get known and become famous. That's the way you actually get on the radar and get noticed by people. So it's not about trying to be everything to everybody on social media. It's much more be extraordinary. I wrote a book years ago called One Big Thing, Discovering What You Were Born mm -hmm. to Do. And that's the theme of that book that came out before social media, but that's still relevant today because discover that one big thing you're amazing at that God's called you to accomplish that could change the world. And that's the way to start. So more hard questions. Do you think the small niche can work in local church? Like by aiming small at maybe oh, yeah. traffic? Absolutely. You know, the, the Great Commission is interesting to me. Um, you know, we're called to reach the world with the gospel, but the truth is your church is not going to reach everybody. You know, every pastor thinks he's going to reach everybody, but it's not true. Um, I say, let's find the low hanging fruit. Let's find the people that respond to your message in your geographical community, in, you know, that, that, that reflect the culture and the makeup of your church. Let's go after those people with a vengeance. And I'll tell you something, if every church in the world did that, we would win the world. We would fulfill the great commission, but because we're scattered, we're trying to reach everybody. Yeah. We're not hardly reaching anybody. So I say, be who you are. I, I, I was at a church recently that there's probably a lot of your listeners are doing this. They're still doing the the contemporary service and you know or the traditional service at nine in the morning and then they do a con completely different contemporary service at 11. you know what it's time to throw that out it's time to be who you are figure out who you are as a church and be amazing at who you are instead of being average at something else what is that'll it? that'll make some people mad yeah <laughs> <laughs> thanks what is it then that drives us because it seems like to me so on a on a, on a cognitive scale it seems like to me it's 10 times harder to be all things to all people, right? To try to win yeah. everybody or try to fit every model or mold or whatever um, than it is to do the hard work, you know? But why are we so hesitant in doing the hard work to actually find out what our niche is or, or, or what that one big thing for us is? What's the hesitancy there? That's a great question. And I think people are, are good people and they wanna do right, the right thing and they read the Great Commission and they feel like we should try to do it. Let me give you an example from Jack Hayford, my pastor for many years. Um, I've heard Jack preach probably six, eight hundred, a thousand sermons. I mean, literally on everything you can possibly imagine, forgiveness, grace, family issues, all kind of stuff over the years. But if you cut Jack, he will bleed worship. I mean, he's written a mm -hmm. hundred worship songs. He's written five books on worship uh, for 27 or 30 years when he pastored Church on the Way here in Los Angeles. He not only was the pastor, he led the worship. He was the worship leader. Wow. He That's his thing. So he views everything in the world through the lens of worship. So it doesn't matter if he's preaching on forgiveness, if he's preaching on financial issues, if he's preaching on judgment, whatever he's preaching on, he does it through the lens of worship. And I'll tell you something that put Jack on the map that gave him a different perspective than anybody else in the world had. And that's what got Jack noticed. So I just really believe for pastors to figure out that lens, what is that thing you view the world through? If you can do that and then do whatever you're called to preach on, it doesn't mean you have to preach on fewer subjects, but you do it through this common lens that really is, is integral to who you are. I think that would change everything for you. I, I don't know if that answered the question or made yeah. sense, but I've, say, I've seen it happen in the lives of so many leaders. I think it's exceptionally freeing because I think sometimes we're always trying to be all things, all people, yes. or we're trying to be somebody else. So I think that's exceptionally freeing for leaders to go, 
hey, yes. this is who I am, and I'm going to go reach people like this and like me, and I'm going to find leaders to come alongside me that think and feel like this. And, and I think there is a win in that. I think there's liberty in that. And I think probably you're right. We would see explosion in churches reaching more people because we're just being who God's called us to be. Boy, that's that you said it much better than me. I think that's exactly and when I look at the, the most effective churches in America, that's what they're doing. That's exactly yeah. what they're doing. They have a the, the leader from the leadership team on down. They are focused and that really does matter. Yeah, I get that. I mean, that's good. Even being at Saddleback all those, you know, all those years. I mean, Rick is you. You cut Rick open, he's going to bleed purpose. Every, yeah. Right? I mean, every every message, every sermon, every PD conference that I ever attended, kind of filtered yeah. through those through those five purposes of, of life. And and it I think it's matter. the same. Like yeah. Andy Stanley, it's leadership. Yeah. Um, Louis Giglio, it's next generation, and 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 you can go on and on the list. You just oh, you it's huge in yeah. there. Yeah. And, and you can go way pat. Billy Graham was salvation. Oral yeah. Roberts was healing. Joel Osteen yeah. is hope. I mean, you could just whatever. Yeah. The guys that have really nailed it are guys that have figured out what that is, whether you like them or not, or whether you follow them or not. These are people that have really figured out what that lens is, and they yeah. do everything through that. That's awesome. That's good. So here's a question. I know we're getting close to time, and, and we want to honor that, but um, I know you two kind of help a lot of leaders, not only in in, in terms of ministry and other pastors and churches but you help a lot of other leaders who are also not in that industry. Right. So a lot of leaders in different. So in your experience, uh, what are some of those maybe one, two, three high view steps that people can take leaders can take to not only maybe discover who they are, but to be okay with who they are. (laughs) I like that addition to be okay with who you are. That's really true. Uh, Let me give you a couple of quick, quick thoughts. Excuse me. Um, one of them would be uh, sometimes it's very hard to figure out what that one big thing is for us. Uh, yeah. You know, it, we, it's r- real hard, but th- the rest of the world sees it quite often. I mean, for instance, remember at high school, when we do a high school homecoming, you know, com- when we were on the homecoming committee at high school, we'd sit around a table and say, well, Bob, you know, you're good with numbers. Why don't you do the budget? Susan, you're really creative. Why don't you come up with a theme? Sam, you're amazing in front of people. Why don't you be the host? Other people see what we're naturally gifted for sometimes before us. So number one, I encourage people, ask your friends, people that are, would be brutally honest with you. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What do I seem to be really good at? Mm. The second thing to think about is what comes easy for you. Um, doesn't mean you can't improve. Doesn't mean you don't work hard at it. But I, I, early in my career, I directed a lot of sports television uh, for the NCAA and football, basketball, boxing, all kind of stuff. And I would just talk to these athletes and they'd say, Phil, you know, I was just the guy in the neighborhood that could catch the ball. Nobody else could, or I was always the fastest kid in my, on my street. Um, it just, things that came easy for them were what they built their career on. And for me, it's writing. I just love writing. I can certainly improve. I'm always studying it and trying to be better, but I can't not write. I just live to write. So I learned early on. That's my thing. Um, so finding that thing that comes relatively easy for you is really, really critical because, um, you know, why keep struggling? Don't hit, bang your head against the wall, find out what works for you and be amazing at that. And, uh, one, one other thing I would just say is constantly be, be learning and growing. I, I'm, I'm, I read a quote the other day by Michelangelo at the peak of his career, probably the greatest artist of all time 
said, I'm still learning. And mm. I think if he could say mm. that, I could still say that. And I think one of the problems, one of the reasons we fail as Christians in the culture today is we're just not really paying attention to what's going on out there. I want to read stuff that I don't agree with. I want to see things I don't agree, I don't agree with. I want to see what's going on out there in the world so I can formulate a better response. And so very often we get in this bubble. One of the sad things about our world today is we have Christian television, Christian radio, Christian publishing. Mm -hmm. We have Christian everything. And it's easy to get stuck in the bubble. And I think there's a place for Christian television and Christian radio and Christian publishing. That's that's fine. Um, but I don't want to get stuck in that bubble. I'm constantly wanting to step out and see what the rest of the world looks like. And when I'm working on a film set here in Hollywood, that's not a Christian project. It gives me such insight into what's going on, how people think, how it works. So I would just encourage people always be aware of what's happening in the world. Never, never, never stop learning. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Phil, this has been enjoyable to say the least. We have one final question that we ask every one of our sure. guests. I think you mentioned you were an ORU grad, right? Golden Eagles. Yeah, boy. Correct? Yes, we'll sir. Talk about that after the show. Um, <laughs> I got some connections. Oh, it's good. It's good. I got connections out there. But we ask every guest this one same final question. What is one lesson you learned in college that did not take place in the classroom? The lesson I learned in college that didn't happen in my classroom was don't wait, seize the moment. I had a mm -hmm. film professor at ORU that said, look, Phil, you just become the best director you could be, the best producer you could be, and Hollywood will beat a path to your door. Well, he was an idiot. He had no clue. Um, once I got out here, I learned, oh, my gosh, it is, it is fighting tooth and nail, and you have to seize the moment. I owned a commercial company a number of years ago that did Super Bowl commercials, and we did some super high-end commercials. And in that world, we have something called spec, spec reels. And it's simply that when a young director is trying to break into the advertising world, he goes out and produces his own commercials. They could be Nike commercials or Under Armour commercials or Starbucks, whatever, because the company's never going to use them. These are just for you to demonstrate your ability. But you raise the money, you shoot the spots, you edit them together, and they're designed to show off your ability. And, but you have to take the initiative and do it. You have to raise the money. You have to find the crew, get the equipment and do it. I wish early on I had really seized that moment and, you know, run up the credit card bill, taken out a second mortgage, leaned on my relatives to help me get enough money to start making some projects I could have been really proud of and shown and shown to the world. Because, you know what? Ideas are great. I'm glad you're thinking about that movie or thinking about writing that book or thinking about starting the church or launching the ministry. But the truth is people want to see something you've accomplished. So get out there, seize the moment. Doesn't matter. Doesn't have to be pretty. Er, my friend, Erwin, Erwin McManus calls it raw beauty. It, it may have a lot of mistakes, may have a lot of screw ups, but at least you've accomplished something and people notice that. So that would be my encouragement for people. Great. That's, That's a great so answer. Good. Yeah. Great answer. And, and, yeah, Erwin is on our list of people to get on the show. <laughs> if Erwin's listening, he's awesome. he is, but we would like to have him as a guest. I'll give him a call. I'll lean on him for you. Okay, Thanks, that'd be great. Guys. Thanks. I appreciate that. Phil, man, it has been such a joy, such an honor to have the conversation yeah. with you. And thank you so much for, for taking the time to be on the show with us. And I know our listeners are going to be uh, very encouraged and very inspired and uh, even challenged to really kind of think through yes yeah, super um, insightful stuff yeah super insightful well thank you uh, and you guys that it, very insightful questions i don't often get asked such good questions I, I, it's still making me think a little bit so <laughs> <laughs> we can maybe come back to that but yeah. as I always say here on the leadership drips phil you have a seat at the table with us thank you thanks thanks for listening to this episode of the leadership drip if something from this episode helped you lead better then share it on your social media and tag us 
If we see it, we may share it to our channels. We appreciate you taking time to join us. And remember, you always have a seat at the table.